Enter your code. Retinal scan required. Agent confirmed. Good morning, and welcome to Now Playing's Mission Impossible Retrospective Series, Mr. Hunt. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch and review each movie in the Mission Impossible series. Your team for this mission will be Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob. This mission will be dangerous, filled with top-secret plot spoilers and mild language. As always, should any member of your team be caught or killed, the Secretary will disavow all knowledge of your actions. This recording will self-destruct in 30 seconds. Today we're discussing Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Starring Tom Cruise, Jeremy Renner, Simon Pegg, Rebecca Ferguson, Ving Rhames, Sean Harris, and Alec Baldwin. Directed by Christopher McQuarrie. This is the now playing co-host who can neither confirm nor deny any details about this rogue podcast without permission from the secretary, Arnie. Stuart in LA. And this is Jacob, otherwise known as the Bone Doctor. I'm disappointed. I thought you were going to play mommy and daddy games with Amal the Strangler in the Moroccan prison. (laughs) (laughs) That was the line that I heard. I'm like, oh, that's a Jacob line. (laughs) So Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, the last currently of the Mission Impossible franchise. I don't know about you guys, but I could not escape the Tom Cruise publicity tour for this one. Everywhere I turned, Facebook, I think it went viral that he was lip syncing with Jimmy Fallon and he seemed literally inescapable. The impossible thing was not to see him promote the movie. Yeah, it makes you want to know, all right, what were the bombs? We're here at Mission Impossible, so (laughs) what movies underperformed to get him back hanging off of this plane? Rock of Ages. I forgot about that one. Oh my god, I saw that. It was miserable. It is so miserable that I refuse to see the stage performance, even though people tell me it's so much better. I'm like, no, I am so burned on that utter piece of shit film. Did he lip sync in that one as well? He claims to have sung, but hell, I mean, he's Tom Cruise. He can destroy and make planets. He can hang off airplanes. He can hang outside buildings. You think he can't sing? I don't think he can turn that into a money-making proposition. I definitely think that he sung for it. But there were other ones, too. Oblivion, which was a pretty meh sci-fi movie. Yeah, it was all right. And then Edge of Tomorrow, which I actually think is probably one of my favorite of his movies, period. Underrated. The problem was Cruise. I think that people were done with him. I mean, there have been recently documentaries linking him to unpopular Scientology endeavors that have gotten people questioning his church and him and his morality. And yeah, I mean, he keeps aging as we all do, but that does sort of price you out of some of the leading man roles that you're going for. He doesn't show the age at all. I mean, he looks younger than I do. I don't know. I thought he started showing in this one. Maybe they are just using better cameras these days. You know, he's been pretty much ageless this whole time, but I thought he looked a little bit older here. He's aged, but I mean, he has a boyish quality about him. So we're watching an older boy, basically. If Marjorie is any indication, she hated, hated, hated Tom Cruise. But the more she heard about this movie and how he did his own stunts and how he hung outside a plane and lip-synced with Jimmy Fallon and played practical jokes on Simon Pegg during filming, he has successfully humanized himself to her. 
She's like, well, maybe he's not so bad. She still didn't go see this movie, but she... <laughs> Either time. You saw it twice. She went zero. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, I agree. I think the public is ready to forgive. We have short attention spans. So however we might have felt about him last year or even six months ago, that can all change with publicity. And, and that's one thing you've got to give Cruz is that he's very enthusiastic. When he does something, he fully commits. He promotes it. He does all of his stunts. And, you know, he's got a right to brag because he's he really threw a lot of himself into a part five of a franchise a lot of us i think at least on this podcast have forgotten about and he did bring on a a new and trusted friend to direct the project and write it as well yeah christopher mcquarrie now there are two tom cruise movies he's made since the last mission impossible that i wanted to see neither of which i've had time to see edge of tomorrow it's been sitting on my dvr as has jack reacher directed and written also by Christopher McQuarrie, who I mentioned last week, writer of one of my all-time favorite films, The Usual Suspects. Yeah, he's a script doctor. He's also worked on movies you'd probably never want to watch, Arnie. But yes, (laughs) he did have one huge hit. He was a go-to screenwriter, oh, about 20 years ago, and has continued to work in the business. Jack Reacher was fine. It was a polished project that is completely watchable, disposable, forgettable. I hear good things. I hear better than that from the people who've seen it. There's a legion of Jack Reacher devotees out there that I have encountered. It's the books. People love the books. And they're a little mad that their six foot four blonde (laughs) hero has been recast as Tom Cruise. But maybe another reason why this movie did so well this weekend is they moved it and how wisely they moved it. I got to say, before I watched the film, they had previews. I saw Spectre. Is this not the same movie? (laughs) It it really is. It beat them to the punch. Was this going to compete against James Bond? Because that's all I could think of while watching this. It was coming out three weeks afterwards. I mean, that would have been bad. Yeah, that would have been bad for them. You take the word Spectre and replace it with Syndicate. It's the same film. And in fact, the syndicate was the specter from the Mission Impossible TV series. Oh, so there's a history for this. Yeah, in the early seasons, the syndicate was just this mysteriously named agency sometimes. This was back in the we're going to overthrow enemy governments years. But in the later years, when things were turning against military operations because of Vietnam and the group were pretty much going up against mobsters, more and more often those mobsters were lackeys or henchmen or somewhere in the syndicate so it's not quite specter because it was more mafia but you couldn't say mafia on 60s and early 70s tv but it was definitely to mission impossible what specter is to james bond i didn't know there was a history for this i was thinking oh captain america winter soldier did really well let's do that hydra type of storyline where they've infiltrated everyone so okay but there's a history on the tv show for this i'll go with that how is he going to tweak the formula that's what i want to know here we were wrong about some of the things we speculated last week nobody's going to die in this jeremy renner i had him pegged for being killed off in this franchise he doesn't get killed The wife doesn't come back to get killed. She's not even mentioned. I guess you were right. I guess they are divorced, annulled, broken up as of the last film. We could talk about it. I notice he never gets with the female lead in this one, though. Oh, but he tries. He thinks about it quite a lot. He does. He does think about it, yes. And I don't blame him. I do think he has some real chemistry with her this time. I think, among anything else, I might speculate, best female lead of the franchise. Not a lot of competition there, so I agree. I mean, Tandy Newton was pretty good, but she didn't kick ass. Yeah, I I like Tandy Newton, the actress. I didn't like whatever that character was with the virus in her. (laughs) (laughs) Ha ha ha.
No, they got the whole team back for this one, though. Rebecca Ferguson's really the only newcomer. Jeremy Renner, who we speculated, media at the time speculated, was the heir apparent to the Mission Impossible franchise's back. Definitely not. <laughs> yeah, no, he's ta- he takes a back seat in this one, even more so. I mean, they met in the back seat in the last film, but this one... Yeah, a reduced role for him. Tom Cruise is here to stay for a while. Yeah, I think so. You know, he's working enough. I don't think that Jeremy needed the starring role <laughs> here, even if they had a part for him. I just think that he's served his time in other franchises. He sold his soul to Marvel. They were lucky to get him for a week or two between Avengers 2 and Captain America Civil War. Yeah, it can't be more than that, because I do think most of his scenes involve him walking around a Washington, D.C. office talking <laughs> yes. to people and, you know, with a Bluetooth, you know. <laughs> Ving Rames is back, five for five. I was thinking about you, Arnie. I didn't care, but when I attended Genesis, Terminator, they did have a segment of this movie up there as a preview. It was about five minutes. I'll point it out when we get to the movie. But I knew Ving was in it. I knew that Renner... Well, he didn't die in the beginning at any rate. Yeah, when I saw Ving at the beginning here, I'm like, oh, here's his cameo, just like last week he shows up right at the end. But no, he's he's an actual character in this film. He's, he's got a role to play. I didn't know when he said he was retired whether he meant him as an actor or the character <laughs> from the IMF. Hey, he's still working in direct-to-video stuff. I saw him in Piranha 3 Double Ds. Oof. Well, there you go. <laughs> so we got a lot of people that are glad to be here in Jeremy Renner, basically. <laughs> Well, Arnie, you saw it twice. Why don't you give us the plot? Just once, though. When we last left Tom Cruise's super spy, Ethan Hunt, and his team, he was investigating the Syndicate, a rogue group of former spies and deep cover agents who have successfully staged assassinations and civil wars for the sake of disrupting the status quo. Did either of you guys remember that or catch that from part four, that they ended dropping the name of the Syndicate? They knew what they were doing. This one... I did not remember that. That That is one of my notes about this film. We'll get into it, but no, I did not recall that. Nope. But the IMF investigation comes to an abrupt end when the agency is disbanded at the request of CIA director Alan Hunley, played by Alec Baldwin. Not Huntley, because that would be confusing. Mm. Hunley shows a Senate committee the results of previous IMF actions, such as blowing up the Kremlin, and despite the protests of Jeremy Renner's returning character William Brandt, the agency is dissolved, and its remnants incorporated by the CIA. Ethan Hunt is MIA and now a wanted fugitive. In fact, Hunt had been captured by the Syndicate, but was able to escape with the help of one of the Syndicate's own agents, Ilsa Faust, played by Rebecca Ferguson. Faust is undercover MI6, who has infiltrated the Syndicate to try and gather the names of their operatives, but letting Hunt go raises the suspicions of Syndicate leader Solomon Lane, played by Sean Harris. On his own, Hunt has hunted Lane, and even recruits the help of Benji Dunn, a returning Simon Pegg, to capture the syndicate leader. When Hunley gives a shoot-to-kill order for Hunt, Brant enlists Luther Stickle, Ving Rhames for the fifth time, to help find Hunt first to save his life. Finally, the four team up in Casablanca to retrieve what they think is a list of all syndicate agents, but is in fact a database of 2.4 billion pounds of syndicate funding. Benji is kidnapped held hostage for the information. And because the database is locked by the British Prime Minister's retinal code, fingerprint, and voice prints, Hunt and Brandt intercept the minister at a charity auction in London. They also gather Hunley, who thinks he's there to capture Hunt. But the Prime Minister reveals the syndicate was the brainchild of Attlee, a high up of the British Secret Service. Attlee had devised the syndicate to covertly take care of any enemies of Great Britain, foreign or domestic. When the Prime Minister wouldn't approve, it turns out Lane went rogue and started the plan anyway. 
A showdown finally comes between Hunt and Lane, and with the help of the team, Benji is freed, Lane is captured, and Hunt's name is cleared. And with that victory, Hanley himself returns to the board and gets the IMF reinstated, with him as their new secretary, as credits roll. A lot going on there, I really had to go vague, because... This entire movie is like brief islands of conversation in between major stunt spectaculars. And so getting into the details of they raced motorcycles here and then jumped into water tubes there, we're going to do that throughout the podcast. Yeah, and let's face it, that's what this movie is geared to do. I think maybe it's why it isn't near and dear to my heart is that it is primarily about action and stunts. And for some audiences, that's great. For me, I usually want to like the spy and I usually want to like where they're going. You know, it's the locations and the mystery they're solving. Here, we're going to start off in Belarus. <laughs> not high on my vacation list, got to say, Belarus. And it's just an airport strip. It's it's not even like you're going to see the country here. Yeah, I don't think it's Belarus. I think it's California. <laughs> if there was one thing they, I, that I and everyone else knew about the pre-release of this movie, it was that Tom Cruise was going to literally be straddled onto a real-life airplane yes. as it took off. And I got to ask, it's cool. I like it. I think it's great and good for him. He's got to keep topping himself. This tops... Climbing a Malaysian skyscraper or wherever they were, Dubai, I guess it was last time. Next film, he's going to have to go out into space without a suit. Moonraker? I definitely <laughs> think it's getting there. And, uh, you know, who's to say we won't leave him? But for now, I do feel like very impressive, but they could have faked this, right? I mean... It wouldn't have been very different to look at if they had blue screened it. No, they could have blue screened this, but I feel like so much of films now, like, we've all grown cynical. Oh, it's CGI. Oh, it's blue screen. It's fake. It's fake. It's fake. It's fake. Like, Mad Max Fury Road, that got so much praise because it was practical, practical, practical. Yeah, yeah. There, there was story stuff, but that was the big selling feature. I think in this day of CGI where you can do anything, that that's a big marketing point. Like, I remember that trailer came out. I saw that trailer and everyone's like, oh, by the way, he's actually hanging off that plane. That is not CGI. I feel like you show that scene in the trailer when this first gets announced so you can start selling practical, practical. It gives you something else to talk about besides the just the movie and i think that's what goes on today in the film world i mean we spend hours talking about the films we review and we get into these aspects and i i feel like movie studios are really grasping onto that as part of the marketing now but i agree with stewart the only reason i knew that was practical is because they told me if they hadn't been out there on their publicity tour saying practical 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 and if i hadn't done this retrospective, watching all the bonus features where Tom Cruise was praising practical up and down and trying to avoid CGI whenever possible, except to remove his safety harnesses, I would have thought this was a CGI stunt. I really would have. It is, truthfully, only marketing where this matters, where you're trying to pit people against the CGI fest of Indominus Rexes. Yeah, but I also think it helps sells Tom Cruise. If, if Look, I'm not a Tom Cruise fan, but dude, this guy's climbing mountains. On, sure, he has harnesses and they're erasing those, but he's climbing mountains, he's climbing buildings. Here he is hanging on to an airplane. Hey, that's kind of cool. I might not be a Cruise fan, but I, I could respect that a little bit. I, I think it is to get those cynical people like myself that, that they're looking for any reason to get people to buy into Tom Cruise. Hey, the one thing it does is it sells you what old school Hollywood stars do. You know, like no actor today has that kind of 
reputation where they're doing all their own stunts and they're boasting about the level of commitment that Cruz is demonstrating. Cruz wants it really, really, really bad. And it makes you inclined to want to give it to him. I might give him props. This is something that I don't think 99% of the actors working today would agree to do. I'm honestly surprised that insurance companies let him do it. I mean, <laughs> eight takes, eight takes of an airplane taking off wow. and going up to 5,000 feet. Yeah, I don't know how he breathes, honestly. I mean, obviously. No, it, yeah, it's very hard to breathe that high. Yeah, you, you pull down. I've skydived a couple times, and let me tell you, the air is very thin up there. I mean, 5,000, I guess that's not so bad. Okay. I got to give this movie props. It starts right here with the plane takeoff. I love some of the camera work Macquarie does in this film. He like straps the camera to items. It's almost like GoPro, the cinematic version, only it's zoomed in instead of that almost fisheye GoPro effect. But it's obvious that the camera is on the plane because it's so freaky. The plane stays in the same part of the frame. Cruz doesn't move. And the ground just changes, tilts, and gets further away. That really sold it to me. Yeah, it's a cool moment. Whether you knew it or not, it's a great reintroduction to Ethan Hunt that, you know, everyone else has failed. It's the team all spread out. Benji's out literally covered in sod in this field. And Brant is back in Washington. And Luther is hacking into a Russian satellite, but he's really on a mission in Malaysia. It's it's They haven't come together. The thing that unifies them is that Cruz is going to do some wacky stunts. And it does. It really does give this opening. They also do the whole Cruz gets blown to the side. It doesn't come at the camera, but when he finally gets that door open, it's quite spectacular as well. The, yeah, but that looked a little CGI-ish. Oh, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I thought they were going to go for the joke. Like, he gets into the door, gets blown out the back, and now he's hanging onto that back door. I, I really thought that's where they were going to go. That would have been funny, too. But, I, you know, it was enough just to see him impact on the other side of this plane there. It, it looked like it was painful. But, yes, it looked CGI. And they really are now just without shame aping the James Bond formula because (laughs) this mission is so tenuously connected to the rest of the movie. Usually there's an opening mission, an opening kill, but it's really launching the main plot. Here, this is just an opening stunt spectacular like Roger Moore skiing off the mountain. And I'm not dinging it for that. It's a great stunt. It's in all the trailers. They get it away out front and I'm left going, Well, crap, if that's your opener, what do you have for the rest? (laughs) Yeah, this is this great stunt scene, and it's kind of going to give us an end to the rest of the plot. But I do feel it also tells us something about these characters. Like, Brant has no control over this team. Like, they're not telling them they're hacking into a Russian satellite so they could hack into this plane. I don't think... Ethan Hunt's supposed to be running down an airplane and jumping through. Like, he has no control, and that's going to be a bit of a theme when he bumps heads with the CIA. I thought of you, Stuart, so often during this movie, but you've claimed how reckless Ethan Hunt is. You called him a gambler in one of the previous (laughs) podcasts. They just take your argument that you formulated over the past four shows. That is why the IMF is disbanded right there, that he gambles too much, he has nothing but good luck and they even bring up previous movies they bring up how stupid it was that they broke into the cia stole the knock list and gave nuke codes to a terrorist 
Of course I'm hooked. This is great. I've never been more hooked. Even with the wife being held at gunpoint, this is a better grabber for me is, hey, they're actually going to make this team accountable. I mean, that's where we're at right now. I do feel like right now American politics is debating about the Patriot Act and how much to roll back. And after a decade and a half of dealing with terrorist threats, have we given too much clout to the people that are supposedly protecting us, but may in fact just be putting us into more jeopardy? This is very topical. I like that. I like it. Anytime a spy adventure ties into real world anxieties, it doesn't have to be real. It doesn't have to be a realistic. I like that it has humor and camp, but if it can tie to a sentiment that I'm feeling about my day-to-day life, I'm much more invested. Yeah, it, it's going to tie into that. It's totally going to throw all that out the window by the end of this film. It's going to go, yeah, being secret and all that is the way to go. But I agree with you. I like that there's at least a self-awareness that Ethan Hunt gets by on a lot of luck, and he's still going to do it in this film. Like, I disagree with you, Jacob. I think he does some, but we'll talk about it as it goes through. I actually think Hunt evolves as a character in this movie for possibly the first time ever. But I'm just happy to see Alec Baldwin there. I'm always a fan of Baldwin. The fact that he's there makes me immediately think he's the head of the syndicate. Yes, I was right there. This was Hydra. He was going to come out and be the head of it. Like, I'm right there with you, Arnie. You've always been a fan of Alec Baldwin? That's strange. I think of Alec Baldwin as having two very distinct careers. The early part where they tried to sell him as a likable leading man, dramatic actor, and then he got fat and didn't care anymore and just said what he thought. (laughs) And that's when he got popular, is when he did 30 Rock and did his comedies and sort of loosened up. Oh, I liked him back in the day with Beetlejuice and... Okay, how about The Shadow? All those Kim Basinger movies. Well, of course I didn't like The Shadow, but I liked him in Glen Gary, Glenn Ross. Yeah, okay, you're naming like the two ones people like. There were like 30 in there. That guy got 30 tries to be a leading man. Hunt for Red October is the best Jack Ryan. Okay, maybe. Again, you are, you are beating me to the punch of saying he had three hits, Beetlejuice, Hunt for Red October, and a cameo in Glen Gary, Glenn Ross, and he had... No joke, no exaggeration, about 32 other bombs. And he was difficult to work with, and he has since had some public scandals. And I just think that he became a much more likable actor when he got fat and just didn't care and was not trying to be leading man material anymore. I think he's more relaxed. If there's anything that could turn me off of a Mission Impossible more than Tom Cruise, it's seeing any of the Baldwin brothers there. I, I Yeah, I'm not a fan of any of the Baldwins. I never got into 30 Rocks. I don't know him from his fat. I don't care, period. Oh, he's still there. (laughs) No, I saw this film. I know he's still in that fat period. (laughs) But yeah, I, I see him and I'm like, oh, this is obviously the bad guy. Like, this is the big bad. Well, I knew that he would be a problem. I thought he had the chance to be Tommy Lee Jones. You know, I know that in these movies, Cruz likes to go rogue, and so there has to be somebody to chase him. I thought that would be the role he plays. It's pretty much the role he plays, although he kind of drops out of the middle of the picture. He is basically the reason why Cruz has to go it alone. It's because he no longer has an IMF. This guy lobbies to have the group disbanded, and Cruz knows better. Cruz knows there is a rogue band of mercenaries being assembled doing all kinds of bad things throughout the world and he knows more than the CIA. My question is does Baldwin do this because he wants to pilfer IMF for their talent or does he do it because he's jealous and wants their budget or is he just power hungry or or does he just generally have a political disagreement 
with Cruz and IMF. I took it, you know, what led up to 9-11, why didn't intelligence get to where it needed to go, is because you do have this infighting amongst the FBI and CIA and all these Washington groups. And so that's how I took it. It's like, oh, no, we're the CIA. We can't have someone more secret than us. Honestly, again, look at the results. The Kremlin blew up. (laughs) They smacked a nuke into a building. They broke it to the CIA. Remember, one of the lines I like that he gives in the speech is, the IMF has been a problem since his early days at the CIA when they broke in to steal the knock list. I think that he feels as CIA director, and that's a hefty title, the IMF gives them a black eye. I take this as retribution. Yeah. I found that funny that, they, yeah, they find, they're finally referencing the older films. Last week, Arnie, you said, oh, they're adding these subtitles to these films, you know, Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation. So they're seen as one-offs. But I felt like Ghost Protocol, that's the first time they acknowledged another film with Ethan Hunt's wife. Here, yeah, they're calling back to three. They're calling all the way back to one, which is why I felt it was so weird that there's this whole syndicate plot going on that I felt like I had never heard of. You're saying they dropped it at the very end of Ghost Protocol. I missed that. I was trying not to fall asleep by the end of that film. But yeah, it it felt like, oh, we're calling back to all these other films. But for me, at least, it felt like this whole syndicate thing was so new. In a way, this was taking me back to three in more ways than just referencing it. Because we had a very similar thing with Larry Fishburne going on as the Alec Baldwin here. Baldwin makes a better impression than Fishburne does. He gets more of an opportunity here by having him basically facing off against Brandt, who looks like every stooge we've ever seen testify in a court of law, saying, I have no knowledge, I cannot say, you know, keeping tight-lipped about anything. Of course, they're going to shut the program down. I mean, he, he does little to protect them. There's, I guess, nothing he can say. Because, honestly, what they're being accused of, they're guilty of. Yeah, the thing is, Baldwin's character doesn't say anything that's not true. He doesn't say anything we haven't said on this podcast about these characters. But Cruz is, of course, right. There is a syndicate, and he finds out firsthand, because he's turning up in London to report for a new mission, and actually falls captive to Solomon Lane. I loved that he went to a record store, because the first scene in the first Mission Impossible episode was that team leader in a record store asking for a rare classical album, going into a booth and getting his mission on a self-destructing vinyl record. And so I was just like, that is awesome that they're calling back to that. Oh, I did. Of course, I didn't recognize that as a callback. I just thought, what a great place to go that no one else will be there. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, no, there will be no <laughs> pedestrians in there. No, vinyl is hip again. Oh, stop it. You and the other two cool people will be yeah, in the back looking at vinyl. But <laughs> I just bought a vinyl faith no more album today (laughs) by and large the public has moved on and for better or for worse i'm not making a judgment call it just yes whenever i see a record shop i go wow how are you still in business who is running that it has to be a front and it's funny because i saw this as oh yeah they're trying to tap in how hot vinyl is again so very different opinions i guess whether you listen to records or not but i do love this setup for yeah getting his next mission they have this whole back and forth with the clerk there you know throwing out different musical references which obviously are the passwords and yeah he gets that record and puts it on in the little booth and i love the twist Keep in mind, they also tied into part four, and it took me a bit to catch up to this, because I'm so used to nothing in these movies mattering in the next one, (laughs) but they killed the secretary last time. 
there's really no one to give Ethan a mission anymore. So because they're an agency without a secretary, that's why they're vulnerable. That's why Hunley can attack now. This is the movie where Ethan is never given a mission. They just pervert the your mission if you choose to accept it twice, both times coming from this evil leader of the syndicate, Solomon Lane, who starts off by killing a really attractive record store girl. So you know he's really evil. He also has that raspy whisper voice. It reminded me of Jupiter Ascending. I, maybe that's a thing now with villains. <laughs> He's a little bit better than that. <laughs> hey, that's an Oscar winner that played that role. This guy had a bit part in Prometheus. He was the, the ginger in that movie. I don't know if you recall. He was one of the people trying to pet the uh, uh, alien cobra. Oh, he was one of those idiots? <laughs> yeah, he was one of the idiots. I've not seen this guy in anything. I looked him up. I guess I've seen him in Prometheus and I didn't remember him, but... You wouldn't. There's no reason to. He's kind of come out of nowhere from me on this one. Yeah, he's got a striking face here. He he looks scary, just, you know, the way that he's photographed and, you know, maybe what God gave him. I don't know. I'd like to believe that he's more attractive than the way that this movie presents him. But They give him a bad haircut in this. Yeah, scary looking mole here. And yeah, he gets the upper hand on Ethan. We don't see this as a moment too often. If you remember from the opening sting, the package they were rescuing was a nerve gas. All of a sudden, this gas is filling this listening booth space. For half a second, I entertained the idea that maybe this is it. I mean, it'd be quite something, right? If they just gassed Ethan and he was dead and the rest of the movie had to be the other team. I mean, you can't think of a better twist. It would have outdone Kaiser Sose if they had started this movie with Tom Cruise getting killed. Especially if he'd done all this publicity for it and still <laughs> died. Yeah. But I wondered, and it took me the second viewing to really link why they didn't kill him. I think that it's a wasted opportunity. They've got him. They choose knockout gas instead of poison gas. Why? And it's because they need him. This whole thing is a plot to get him to do their work for them while under the auspice of stopping them. Yeah, this goes again to my trope where I go always go back to the Dark Knight where you, you're going to have the villain that has almost precog powers. Yeah, he knows they need him, but they're going to put him through all these ruses to get him to trust this girl. So he goes on this mission to actually get what the bad guy needs. Like we saw this in Skyfall. It, we saw this in The Usual Suspects, if you think about it. That, that is true, yeah. So basically, they're recruiting him, even though he doesn't know it. Maybe that's how they get all of the people in the syndicate. I mean, they're getting people to defect from their country the world over. Maybe this is how it starts, and this is the way you start going down that path. Is the IMF, is that just an American thing? Because I got the feeling that this syndicate, they're taking former IMF agents from all over the world. And they've created like this anti-IMF. They're taking spies from all over the world, okay. be it in the KGB. Is the KGB still around? Maybe. No. <laughs> whatever okay. it is these days. Yes, yeah. whatever the Russian Secret Service is, the Chinese Secret Service, MI6, IMF, CIA. They're gathering people from everywhere. But this movie makes clear what's been pretty vague thus far is that the IMF is specifically a U.S. agency under the oversight of the Senate. Yeah, I think if you looked at the first movie, it felt like it had an international flavor, and now it definitely feels like it's localized. It, it's just a different building in Washington, D.C. We've lost all the French people from the team. The first one had a couple French <laughs> with Jean Renault and the woman, and yeah. yet now we have an all-American squad. Oh, I guess Simon Pegg's a Brit, but beyond that. He's defected. He's come over to the U.S. 
He definitely is. He's here to play Halo. I like the fact that the CIA, they take him. They're like, we're going to pilfer all of the IMF goods here, but they just basically stick him in a room. Does he play video games and no one notices because that's how spy work is done? Like people just hunt down things by having someone else do it over a monitor and you just watch it on your laptop or just just no one care about him in this new CIA setting. I took it as no one cared that he was too smart for the CIA job. He's got his little mirror there so he knows when someone's walking up behind him. I, I just took it like he's too smart for this. That's why he was in the IMF and like now he does, yeah, metadata, which I, I just know that's a Snowden thing that came out with the whole NSA. So he's, he's working for the NSA or the CIA. He's spying on us, basically. I know what metadata is. It is actually important in database work. He says under polygraph, and it doesn't come up as a lie, that he has done more than the rest of the team combined as far as data analysis. He's just so good, he can be really lazy. He does more <laughs> in an hour a day than the rest of the team does in a week. Right. Yeah, I do like that they bring him in for these lie detector test every week. To, they're still looking for Ethan Hunt at this point, and they strap him in. I get the feeling, though, that he's kind of gaming that lie detector. He's like, we're not friends. And, you know, he it shows at the very end. He kind of gives a sigh of relief, and you see those spikes go into the lie area just a little bit. I think this movie does a great job with a lot of characters putting them in the gray, where I was never really sure I mean, they could have played it both ways. Probably, I mean, Peg, I knew, would eventually be won back over by Ethan Hunt. But when he says we're not friends and that he's angry, possibly he could be. I mean, they could have played it that way. I mean, he definitely is going to go to Vienna under the auspices of thinking he won free tickets and not because he wants to help his friend. Was that it? I got the feeling he knew what was going on when he got those tickets. I wondered, but the movie does eventually make very clear he thought he won some contest. Yeah, he did not do it out of loyalty. He's lucky they're not stealing his paycheck. It was, could have easily been an identity theft scam. But that's really the theme of this movie. And I got to say, this is the best written Mission Impossible movie. Not a high bar there, but there's a real <laughs> strong undercurrent and all the characters deal with it. And it's about loyalty. It's about what gives you allegiance to another. I mean, why do you side with one and betray another? All the those characters, some more convincing than others, but all these characters are going to face that. And because it's a film about an anti-IMF, it's about evil undercover operatives, I was really questioning a lot of people. I was questioning Alec Baldwin. I also, many times, was questioning Brandt the Jeremy Renner character, I know this is a Christopher McQuarrie movie. I'm looking for that twist. I'm wondering who's going to betray who when. It's a shock to me that the team is always a close-knit team and there is no inner team betrayal. Hunt, Brandt, Dunn, and Luther, those four never betray each other. But I was fully expecting it. I actually kind of thought it might come from Renner, just again, for metadata reasons, thinking that he was going to inherit the franchise. Now Cruz doesn't want to let it go. He said he's going to be jumping out of airplanes in a wheelchair before he <laughs> stops starring in these. And I believe him. So I thought maybe they want to undermine the heir apparent by making him a betrayer. I, I thought it might happen. Now, say that one. I think it'll come one day. I think at some point, Renner will walk away and Cruz will still be there. And they'll probably make it exactly as you say. But the character we really question is Ilsa, who is got a great introduction here. I mean, Ethan wakes up 
chained to a pole. This woman comes in holding needles. And there's a very long exchange of no dialogue where they're just sizing each other up. I mean, is she checking him out? Kind of. But is it because she can't wait to hurt him? Can't wait to interrogate him? Can't wait to hump him? <laughs> it plays all of the above, really. Yeah, I mean, he compliments her on her shoes. That, that's. I thought that was going to be a bigger part. Like, she'd be wearing a rubber mask at some point, and that's the only way he'd recognize her. Because he's so fascinated with her shoes. Not the bone doctors, but her shoes. Wouldn't it be great if Michelle Monaghan pulled off of, of the latex mask and was like, It's your wife, <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> I wondered if Christopher McQuarrie or maybe even JJ had some insight into what was going on over on the set of Jurassic World where Howard was running all around in her high heels because they make a big deal yeah. twice in this movie about taking those heels off. I did notice that and wondered the same thing. I'm sure they were filming at the same time. but She's impractically dressed for torture. I got to say, this is not the outfit you would choose if you were really... How do you know, Stuart? I mean, well, I mean, it's not the outfit I would choose. I'll put it that way. I wouldn't expect someone to come in in dinnerware to get extract the information here. But she's interrupted. She doesn't even get to get a word in before the real torturer, the bone doctor, Vintner, comes in. Yeah, the bone doctor. I'm really starting to look at these films like Bond films. And I go back to your formula for the Bond film, Stuart. How good's the villain? How good's the henchman? How good's the gadgets? How good's the stunts? And so here's our henchman. And... Honestly, he's kind of lame. If it wasn't for his distinctive goatee, I don't know that he'd really make an impression on me. They call him the Bone Doctor. He never gets to cut a single bone open. He never even successfully tortures anyone. Yeah, this is PG-13, and, and this is where I notice it. You set someone up this cool, and then you never see any victim of his, like what he's up to. You don't even hear him making someone scream. It hurts the character. Yeah, but I do feel like when he finally goes down by the hands of one of his own knives, that got a reaction out of the audience. He gets a good death, but he doesn't give good death. And that is a surprise. He's got a suitcase full of hammers and cleavers. And supposedly he died three years ago. This is the first indication that there's this whole network of disavowed dead spies. And I thought we were going to get a throwback to three. We see Ilsa walk in. She has a key to the handcuffs. Was that was there a rabbit's foot on that keychain? It looked like a rabbit's foot. That was definitely an end joke. I, I was wondering if the rabbit's foot was going to come back. We saw some chemical weapons at the beginning of this. I was wondering if they're going to start tying these all together. Well, I don't know that they're doing a lot of tie togethers. I think they're making a lot of references. I mean, anytime a franchise gets to part five, uh, they have earned the right to make end jokes. You know, Fast and Furious. I'm not sure how well tied together those movies are, but they worked it anyway. They insisted on it, even though I feel like... Each movie is very episodic. They have callbacks and characters that tie it to there. And it endears audiences to the franchise. I think that's all the rabbit foot is meant to do. Is it makes you think that if you really paid attention to the third movie and what they were going after, ha, we still don't know. I think it also is completely unnecessary for your understanding of this film. You didn't need to see part four to understand why the IMF is being disbanded. They sum it up nicely. It's really inconsequential while rewarding people like us who marathoned these in the lead up for the new one. Yeah, I think for Mission Impossible, we would be an anomaly. This is not the kind of series where you go back and watch everyone in preparation for the new one. They're designed to be kind of disposable entertainment. 
It's all about action and stunts. And we get that here in this scene. Cruz does an amazing, like, is this going to be some exercise routine that we're doing now where we... <laughs> I think it already is a CrossFit routine. They do all kinds of crazy stuff like that. It's got to be a CrossFit thing. Yeah, you go up the pole that way. Oh, my God. I, I, they had to have a harness, right? That can't be done, right? I don't know. It looked so improbable. It's Cruz, Arnie. It's Cruz. He can do anything. <laughs> he can create and destroy planets. I keep forgetting. If he can do that, he can defy gravity. What I do like is they never take the easy route. Like, he gets the key, but he can't reach the cuff to undo himself. Yeah. So, yeah, he has to do the crazy leap so he could bring his hands closer together so he could finally get out of those cuffs. I do like, okay, here's how he's going to get out of it. Nope, it doesn't work that way. We got to do something more impossible. And Ilsa wants to help. We've seen that. She threw the keys. That didn't really end up helping him at all. But she can't kill the other ones until Ventner goes down. It's like once he's out of the picture knocked out, then she starts helping him and firing. But she's going to stay undercover. She's not going to go with Ethan and escape. She is going to keep playing her role as a loyal asset to Solomon Lane. And I like Ilsa's physicality in these fight scenes. Like she's got this WWE move where she like jumps up and grabs their neck with her legs and like flips them over. I don't know who this actress is. She's a model. She's not an actress okay. yet. So they got a stunt double for this stuff. Then. Yeah. Oh, but she did good. And I understand they went through a couple of actresses for this role. First of all, they tried to get back a couple of the ones from previous films. They tried to get back Maggie Q and another one. And they tried to get another actress, but they demanded six months of fight training before they could start filming. And most actresses who were names absolutely refused to devote six months plus filming time to this. So I think she did probably a good amount herself, but yeah, not all of it. But she's amazing in this fight. Yeah. She kicks ass. Amazing across the board. I want to say Rebecca Ferguson, she's named Ilsa. They go to Casablanca. They're obviously referencing Ingrid Bergman. She looks like Ingrid Bergman if Ingrid Bergman was a star today and had to do martial arts movies, which I never <laughs> thought Ingrid Bergman would ever do. It's kind of amazing to see an old Hollywood star do new Hollywood action, but that's kind of what we get in one package, and she's good. She is is good in the warm-up. She's good in the fights. She's good all around. I, I don't think Cruz has had better chemistry with any woman on screen in these Mission Impossible movies. I'll agree with you there. Again, not a high bar <laughs> I agree with that as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't want to oversell it. I mean, usually there's no chemistry well, there. I mean, look at part two. I was about to cite that as a high point in the series, <laughs> saying it was perhaps second best. But Oh, okay. Well, we can go back to that podcast for that discussion. But yeah, I like her here kicking ass, and I'm like, wow, I wonder if she will be the returning character to kick ass with you know or is she a one-off i think it really depends on so many factors i don't think they know but they have set themselves up with a true femme fatale here and yeah her allegiances keep shifting in the end her allegiance is to herself she wants to stay alive yeah and she is an mi6 agent who's prepared to be disavowed she's so deep undercover very few people even know she's still with mi6 and she's betraying the syndicate by helping him and is going to be, for the rest of the movie, suffering the consequences of that, having to prove her loyalty time and time again, and failing time and time again, because she chooses to save Hunt. But she's not really betraying him, because Solomon Lane knows that she's going to betray him, and so he's using her to use Ethan? Is that what we're supposed to get from this? I didn't overthink it, but I presume that Solomon <laughs> Lane was very happy to have Ethan Hunt 
under lock and key, but maybe by hiring Vintner, he knew that Cruz would have to escape because Vintner is known for killing his subjects more than getting information out of them. And since what he really wants is Cruz to go on the mission he's going to, uh, it's difficult to think. I think that's the point of this one is they're like, you can never be ahead of the plot. You can never know exactly what doing a mission is going to do and and have real world implications. You just don't know. You're not privy to where the information goes after you capture it. And I will say, I thought I figured out Faust's character until we get to Vienna, which is the next big action scene. Like, I okay, she really is this double agent that's going to be on Ethan Hunt's side. But in Vienna, I doubt that for a few minutes. Yeah, is she wearing the exact same dress that Paula Patton was wearing in the last one? I thought the dress was doing a callback as well. I'm like, I'm pretty sure she wore that to seduce the (laughs) Indian TV magnet. That slit goes all the way up, yeah. (laughs) It caught my eye, I'll tell you that. If you wanted her to stand out, put her in that dress. And Vienna, first of all, what a gorgeous looking city the way Macquarie had it filmed. I mean, it's just amazing when... Peg shows up coming in through the subway and going up and seeing the opera house. And it's the setup of another honestly great action spectacle going on as Simon Pegg realizes why he's really there. And Ethan has to track down one of three assassins all there to kill the Austrian chancellor. I thought that was a great setup. I the first time I watched it was really wondering, how the hell is he going to get out of this? Yeah, I agree. It's really smart. We're suddenly realizing we're dealing with a smarter caliber, a bad guy. There's redundancies. Even if Hunt takes out one or two, there's a third one that's there, and he is going to kill the Chancellor. You can't stop them all. And this is just letting you know that Solomon Lane is ahead of a one-man rogue, that there's just no way that Ethan can keep up. He's tried. You know, he's hopped around the world. He's linked all of these events to the syndicate. But he does not stop or save the Chancellor. Good thing the Chancellor is not important to this plot, or at least that we know of. (laughs) The Chancellor is going to die. It could have been an Archduke Ferdinand situation that caused a war. But yeah, Benji, Simon Pegg's character, is brought in, what, to basically run this program to try to identify Solomon Lane? Like, Ethan has drawn a picture of him when he saw him shoot the record store clerk, and Benji is there scanning through the audience, trying to match something up with that drawing. Not even in the audience. They put him in the closet. He's really mad. He really likes opera. Who knew that? But he really wanted to see Turnadot, the opera, and instead he's going to be in the closet with a program that's actually a laptop. I thought that was one of the cool gadgets. We don't get a lot of gadgety stuff in this one, but it was funny to see the program was actually a laptop, and he's yeah basically looking at every audience member. Yeah, I thought there had to be a better, cooler way to do it than just swiping through like he's on Tinder looking for an evil agent. Nope, swipe left. Nope, swipe left. But he is funny in this film. Peg has found the right balance of comedy in this where he's the comic relief without acting like he's in Paul. You know, he's the right amount of snarky upset. Don't go to Paul. Well, that's where he's, I think, at his most over-the-top outlandish. He actually pulls this balance off real well in Hot Fuzz. But he does seem here more because we want Simon Pegg in the movie than because Benji is needed at the Vienna Opera House. It's about loyalty. I mean, Cruz calls him in because he needed 
somebody else that he could trust. And that was really it. I mean, that was the only one that he thought that he could tempt to get to Vienna to do this one night of work. And he's going to give him a, a great excuse for going back without being implicated in Ethan's crimes here. That's why he called on Benji. And I had a cheer for Benji moment. You know, I knew that he could be the guy in the closet scanning things. But when he goes to get that big security guard, Richter, who's like killed everyone in the light booth and is setting up the third sniper shot. I'm like, you're not going to win this, but I will applaud you for dying trying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he gives it his all. He's always going to be a IMF agent no matter what. Yeah, that's the thing is apparently he misses being in the field. And we've seen that character evolve. You know, the third movie, he was just a guy in a lab that told them something, you know, bit of knowledge. In the fourth one, he started to get to put on outfits and he was playing dress up and having fun. And you could see that he was always kind of laughing to himself that he couldn't believe what he was getting himself into. And now he's addicted. He does not want to give it up. I think one of my favorite, I don't know if you could call it tech in this film, but during this whole assassination attempt, I love, what is that, a flute shotgun? Yes. <laughs> the aim cannot be good on that. I don't know what the pitch is like, but that cannot be a very reliable weapon. I do love, like, yeah, Ethan Hunt's going to get in a fight with this guy who has snuck in with the orchestra. It seems like the orchestra would already be, like, screened and seated prior to, like, the audience coming in. But, okay, whatever. <laughs> and they'd know who their flautist is? Yes. Maybe, maybe not. They're musicians. There's a lot of turnout in Flake. <laughs> but, yeah, I love, like, they get in this fight on the catwalk and... Ethan finally picks up like this flute and he's like looking at it, like what the hell is this and, like, he has to move it around and like really figure it out because it is such an odd looking gun I love that when he's fighting the other guy for the flute they finally use Tom Cruise's stature to the movie's advantage oh I love that because <laughs> yes, this guy yes. just keeps standing up and Tom Cruise reaches full height which isn't much taller than me and this guy keeps on going <laughs> and that fight is Fun, where they go on the multiple levels because the lights are raising and lowering half because of Simon Pegg and half just because it's what they're programmed to do for the show. And so like Tom Cruise gets knocked down and I love it when like the lights start going back up and the evil guy, who I I think he's Russian because he just looks so stocky. They all look like Drago. To me. Yes, exactly. The flautist is actually Israeli. He's Kagan. Oh, that's right. They say he's Mossad. Yeah. yeah. But he's standing there with a knife and Tom Cruise just kind of does the, all right, give me a second hand motion before the fight resumes. I kind of like that. But I, he defeats that agent and yeah, he notices there's the security guard in the control booth and then Ilsa in one of the set pieces, and they're both aiming at this prime minister. Yeah, again, how is he going to take both? He doesn't even want to shoot her. No, obviously. No, I thought for sure he was going to shoot the guy who never spoke because he was just a stunt double versus shooting Ilsa because I could tell she was important. Yeah, it's a good quandary. And of course, being built around an opera, that's always good. The musical cues here, I got to feel like we heard the main theme in the opening credits, of course, but I feel like most of the music is actually pulled from this opera. Certainly in the love story that unfolds, it's always scored to this opera. They, they, they use the Mission Impossible theme very sparingly in this movie. Agreed. And Joe Kramer, I don't know him by name from a lot of other stuff. He hasn't done a lot, actually. I looked at the resume. I'm like, really? You got this job? He did Jack Reacher. Must be a friend of Macquarie's. Yes. But this is a very operatic score. There are definitely callbacks to this scene. I really like it. It is so effective in this movie. So much better than Michael Giacchino. <laughs> 
But yeah, great scene, great moment, and a great way of getting out of it. That Cruz just gives the Chancellor a flesh wound. That means by shooting first, he's out of position when the other two are firing on their note. Yeah, they, they literally have to fire on a certain note. You can't just be an expert marksman. You have to understand music and know when you hit that allegro. Hey, you always want when the biggest note, you know, who's going to hear? Not that they don't have, you know, silencers on their weapons, but uh, it's a good masking if the guy's going eight octaves up. I just love that Ethan has watched Speed. When they do that whole hostage scenario, you shoot the hostage type situation. <laughs> That's what I was thinking of when he gives the prime minister a flesh wound. And yet I'm always wondering a little bit about Ilsa. 85% of me is saying she's the girl, she's going to be a good guy. But was she aiming for Peg when he's fighting in the light booth? Who's to tell? And she had a laser scope that somehow nobody saw on the yeah. Chancellor. That laser scope, she claimed she was going to do what Hunt did. She claimed she was just going to give a flesh wound, but that was right on his chest. And knowing that she's under investigation from Lane because she helped Ethan escape, right. I do wonder if she would have killed him. I mean, she is an undercover operative. Killing is not outside of her purview. It's hard to say. That's exactly right. If she wasn't going to kill Cruz, but Peg was expendable and who knows how she would have played it. She takes the other guy out and Peg is there to pick them up after they get off of the roof in another kind of awkward sexual tension moment where they're involving shoes. You know, she's got to take off those fancy shoes and slide down that rope and escape like it's no big deal while... You know, everyone is swarming the opera house looking for the sniper or snipers. And the entire rigging they use falls down behind them. It was a nice little joke. Yeah. Yeah, I like that there's some humor to this. I like that he pulled on the rope and realized that what they were attaching it to wasn't completely secure and then it falls. This movie is really good about giving you an exciting action scene or a breathtaking spectacle and then putting a little exclamation point of humor on right at the end. It provides a pleasant viewing experience that we know, okay, the action is done because we're allowed to laugh now. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, The tone is just right. And again, I thought it was amazing that the Chancellor doesn't live. They think, oh, they put him in the car. He's just a flesh wound. Boom, they had a car bomb. Solomon was not going to let this pass. I don't know, and we're not really to think too hard about what Solomon is doing. On an international scale, you know, Cruz will lay it out that he gasses people in Manila and car bombs that create civil wars. And then, did you notice, they referenced the missing plane, you know, the one that yeah. took off from Malaysia that disappeared, which, oddly enough, the same week this came out, they had a breakthrough on. They think they found it, or at least parts of it. Yeah, during this time, Cruz was thought to be hiding out in Cuba. He's actually in Paris setting all this up, but he leaves this thing for the CIA. Yeah, that's aligning all these different catastrophes, this fire at a chemical plant in the Philippines, the missing plane. He is trying to show the CIA that there is the syndicate thing going on, but I guess they're still not believing him. And who would? I mean, that is the very definition of a conspiracy theorist. You know, there's people that can link everything together and, and see a cabal controlling the Illuminati. Even Benji tries to point that out, that maybe they are coincidences. Yeah, he does. Because how do you show a master villain? What is Solomon really going to get by doing all of this? We don't know. I'm still not sure. I still don't know what his whole final solution is. Is it world domination? He's setting up a new world order, but I don't get that he's setting himself up as the head of it. Yeah, I agree with that. No, I, I think it comes in the answer to the next scene when we go to Casablanca. There's some money involved. We're not sure what's in this database, 
that they want to get. We're told this is going to be able to show that Lane is the guilty one. This is his ledger that will show all the people he's working with. It's not going to really be that, though. And the way that they even get to Casablanca, I love that in the limo, once again, Elsa's like, I have to leave you again, just like she did when he escaped the prison. She's like, it has to look like I escaped. I have to have a believable cover. And he's frisking her. She has weapons everywhere. <laughs> There's a knife under that slit. I, I, I thought they were just in one place. No. they kept taking them out. She has a hair braid that's like a knife. She has a knife under her dress. He, every time he goes to frisk her some more, he's pulling away another lethal implement. Yeah, she gets all the gadgets. Yeah, even the lipstick thumb drive, which I swear five years from now is the thumb drives that people are going to age the worst. They're already almost out of use. Yeah, who uses a yeah. thumb drive anymore? It's all on the cloud. Except for the data about this, which specifically is in what Benji refers to as a skiff, which is a self-contained computer facility, no internet. The only way to get there is three combination locks, a retinal scan, a fingerprint scan, and it's going to measure your gait. So you can't even wear a mask. <laughs> it's going to see the curvature of your spine and how you walk to see if you're the same person. And that is where the data is locked up that eventually we find out. At this point, we think it's a ledger. We think it's basically the evil knock list, right? It's everybody who works for the syndicate. I was about to say, we've seen this many times. They always do this. We have to break into a place and steal something really important. This is the fun, though. I mean, Yeah, no, this is the good stuff. It's not what they're stealing that matters. Debating it as it pertains to the plot, irrelevant. It's the fact that this is deemed impossible to do. Nothing is going to make Cruz smile more broadly than being told <laughs> he can't do something. Actually, I love his facial reactions here because Benji's just like, oh, you just have to hold your breath for three minutes. You said impossible. Yeah, that's the fun of this scene is that basically he's like we all are. Oh, Tom Cruise can do it. No problem. He's a superhero. We actually see a vulnerable Cruise. He's like, um, actually, that sounds hard. <laughs> and one of my favorite things with these Mission Impossible films is when they just talk about how tough it's going to be to get into one of these buildings or safes or whatever. Like, I, I love them setting it up as this impossible task. And I love Benji. Like, he's like, oh, yeah, so I get to wear a mask. That's going to be fun. And like, you see him making the mask and putting it on. And then, yeah, he walks through these cameras that measure how you walk. And you see the tasers come out as he's imagining how it's going to fail. I do love that. And I, that they went through the trouble of doing the mask scene just for this gag. It's great. Yeah, this is this movie's Dubai, right? I mean, this is as good as the Dubai stuff last time. It is. I'm not going to say it's as good as the Dubai stuff, but it is the Dubai scene of the film. I actually think it's as good as the Dubai stuff. It's not as good as specifically hanging outside the building. But overall, this scene's just more action-packed and done better than everything else in Dubai. The sum of Casablanca is better than the sum of Dubai in the Mission Impossible franchise. But this stunt, whoa. All right, I have this thing. I've done it since I was a little kid. When there's an underwater scene in a movie, I actually hold my breath <laughs> to see if it's doable. And my God, I was like gasping in my seat before he had even made it down the tube. You know, there are deep sea pearl divers that like can hold their breath for five minutes, but you got to like spend a life devoting to expanding yeah. your lungs. You know, I don't think, yeah, you can just expect to just do it. And I think that's what Cruz is worried about here is that he two minutes, maybe three minutes. E. Yeah, we even see Ilsa. She's practicing in our pool. Like they'll show us this timer on her arm. Not really sure why she's practicing holding her breath. We're going to know once we get to this break in scene that she 
Cruz, he's going to have to do it for three minutes. And I like that they call out like, yeah, three minutes is easy as long as you don't have to move your muscles around. But it's that's what's really going to take the oxygen out of you is when you have to move around and swim down there. Yeah, no metal, no movement. It really does sound like, well, maybe doable for a movie. But yeah, certain death for anyone that would really attempt to do this. And uh, it nearly kills Ethan. Now, take this for what you will. But I did notice there were some pretty long takes underwater here. Now, it's a mixture of real Tom Cruise with some CGI at a couple of points. I don't know Mm -hmm. what's real and what's not. But on his publicity tour, Tom Cruise claims he had to hold his breath for up to six and a half minutes for some of these long takes. No, I don't believe it. For someone that is not like a Navy SEAL, that is death. Yeah, that's... I don't know. It is Tom Cruise, though. I'm willing to give it to him. I mean, I know he would try. They might have lied to him. I don't think he'd lie to us, but they might have lied to him. It's like, no, Tom, you went six. <laughs> the Scientologists are off screen yeah. up the time that he's under there. Tell him. <laughs> he passes out. He does drown. They do revive him. It was six and a half minutes, Tom. But the one thing I noticed is there's a couple times when the camera moves and like Tom Cruise is in frame, the camera moves to where he's going and he catches up. And I'm like, that's the moment he grabs air out of a tube. <laughs> but yeah, this seems a lot of fun. I mean, the, the whole point is he's got to put this identity in and they have fun with these like little punch cards that, you know, they fall out of his hand and then the seawater gets turned back on and then one slips away does he even have the right one to put in so that peg can walk through this is where he becomes the gambler and this is the one part you could say all of this other stuff was calculated this is luck right here that he grabs the right card to put in. that's absolutely true because there's nothing to tell him the difference no which is a mistake in the beginning they should have put like a little red mark on it yeah just do something to tell it apart i mean what's he gonna do he's got to put in a card he does have to guess I'm surprised, though. This is a movie based upon gadgets. They said no metal can go down this tube. First of all, his wetsuit is zipped up. All right, I'll take a plastic zipper. I was looking for a zipper on that thing. Yeah, I think those suits are coming, too. From what I understand is all of our clothes in the next eight years, they'll be like batteries. They can actually power your Walkman and all of that. That There will be a static electricity charge that will have LED stuff on it. So just as drones were a new thing when the 2006... MI3 came out, I think in uh, about eight years, we'll all be going, oh, he was the first to wear that suit. Well, why couldn't he take a plastic air tank with him then? If it's specifically metal, I mean, hell, even if he took a super soaker plastic water gun full of air to suck out of down there. (laughs) Have you tried that, Artie? That sounds like you've tried that. Perhaps. Yeah. Good (laughs) luck. Why don't you let us know? You do the field research. I'm just saying these guys are smarter than that. It creates a great stunt, but I gotta think if they'd involved Luther, he would have come up with a better idea. Perhaps. It's the one that they went with, with the operatives that they had, and I'm glad they did because it was really exciting, really fun, real highlight of this movie. I do feel like it. it's as good as that first bungee scene. It rivals Dubai. It's just a really good heist. And this is where I know... Ilsa is on the side of Ethan Hunt. Eventually, she's going to jump down there to save him because he is going to die. He can't hold his breath that long. He can't open the hatch. He's going to die. But even before then, she is legitimately worried. Unless it's a total movie fake out where for no reason they're acting concerned just to fool the audience. This is telling me, oh, she actually cares about this guy. She doesn't want him to die. And she ends up going down there to save him. I, I am shocked that Cruz dies in this film. Ethan Hunt dies for a few minutes at least. I actually believe her caring for one real reason. They're both pretty much disavowed agents who were going after the syndicate and now are trapped in the situation where everybody's hunting them. 
I firmly believe it's true. She's offering to run away with him and just say, screw all these people. Let them go fight each other. You and I can run away. I think she sees a kindred spirit in him, and that's why she risks herself repeatedly to save him. Or maybe she just has morality. I mean, it could be simply that, you know, she's going to be loyal to the syndicate. She is going to betray them and walk away with this punch card document. But she didn't want this guy to die. Yes, she could have gone down there and picked up the punch card after he drowned and just gotten away with it. But that she chose to go down, pull him out, and use the paddles to resuscitate him means that she had some moral question about letting him die. But is that love? Or is that simply, I got into this business because I wanted to help people? Keep in mind also, she never intended to take that card to the syndicate. She saw that card as her way out. She could return that to Atlee, who was her handler. Oh, right. Good point. And Atlee would get her out. So she has the morality to keep Hunt alive, but she also has the self-preservation to think this is her way out. Yeah, it's all about allegiance. Again, it's a big theme here. It does, towards the end, I get a little confused about what everyone's game is as they start to become committed to their plans. You're right. She is actually just hoping to impress her boss with the British intelligence so that she can return to a life of normalcy. And then maybe she would date Ethan. Who knows? But I didn't necessarily feel like she revived him purely out of the the love of running away at this point. That scene will come later. Plus, we just get a tremendous car motorcycle chase next. And I love the humor where he actually, you know... You guys really pointed out to me in the first couple of movies how Ethan did nothing wrong so that when he started making mistakes, it pointed out he's just been resuscitated. He found a Hawaiian shirt from somewhere <laughs> and he tries to do like the skidding over the hood maneuver and falls on his face. I thought that was really amusing. Yeah, he has come back from the dead at this point. Like he doesn't have his full functionality here. And I, yeah, I do love that. Like he goes for the cool Dukes of Hazard slide over yeah. the hood and falls down. And also at this point, the team is more or less or I guess they're about to come together because Brant and Luther, they've decided to go after them and find them. And they're in Casablanca as well as this big chase begins. Another uneasy truce, a a lack of loyalty, less convincing. But Luther has some lip service about how he doesn't like Brant and thinks that he could potentially betray him and will kill him even if things go wrong. So I think they have some funniness fighting over their car rental. But uh, (laughs) I never really believe that they're going to go at it the way that, you know, some of these alliances are. I never trusted Brant in this film. And when he comes in, I'm with Luther. I'm like, and... Keep in mind, Luther quit. All of the IMF people were offered jobs with the CIA. Luther turned him down. He did go into retirement. And so he doesn't trust Brandt, which is why I think Luther should have been the very first person Ethan called instead of Benji. I think Luther, he's just sitting around. He is the only person this entire movie who has unwavering devotion to Ethan. Both Benji and Brandt a couple of times are like, all right, why don't we just get the CIA involved now? Why don't we step back? Luther's the only one who is constantly team Ethan. And yeah, I didn't trust Brant at that time. And when they get there, I'm a little bit relieved. I'm like, okay. So Brant didn't turn this information over to Hunley. But then later on, they play with it some more. I kept oscillating back and forth on which way Brant would go. Luther, no question. I never questioned Brant 
But here in Casablanca, like, as fun as that heist was, here is my favorite scene when this whole chase begins. I love the way Ilsa starts it off. Like, she is with all the other goons, the Bone Doctors there. They're all on motorcycles. And she does this, like, spin-out move to knock them all down and takes off and kicks off this whole chase. It's, it's exciting stuff. It's my second time watching it. This was the scene that IMAX released as a teaser before Terminator Genesis. And with good reason. Obviously, you watch this scene and you realize, oh, maybe I do want to see that Tom Cruise movie, part five of something that I had forgotten about. I mean, it, it's a grabber. The fact that they're able to get Tom Cruise back on a motorcycle after what I hated in two, and like, this is the best part of the film, they're doing something right. Yeah, this is really good. Again, I talked about Christopher McQuarrie strapping cameras onto things. He straps cameras onto the motorcycles for a couple of these shots, one of them going down a staircase. He has a very good car chase in Jack Reacher as well, so maybe he's not just great for screenplay twists. Maybe this guy is a, a competent action director, or maybe he's hired the right people, the right stunt coordinators to help him with that vision, but there is no drop-off. I feel like oftentimes when screenwriters step up and become directors, it becomes very talky. You feel like it's, it's, it's less a success as a uh, physical, visual story. Not the case with McCoy here. I feel like he is as strong director, as strong or more than the Pixar guy or even Brian De Palma. And this chase, I don't know what it is about how he does it, but it feels so fast. The way the background is going and Cruz is there without a helmet. and Yeah, the way they lean into those yeah. curves and their knees are like almost straight. I think Cruz's knee does hit the ground at one point, which would really hurt. <laughs> yeah, at one point he looks down and checks the distance from his knee to the ground. And I don't think that was in character. <laughs> I'd be worried. Maybe Cruz doesn't worry. But you mentioned part two. There is like sort of a cheesy part two ending to this chase. It all comes to a head when she steps out in front of the road and he uh, swerves to miss her and it this is totally the shot from the wraith no it's casino royale no the wraith did it in 86 <laughs> i couldn't believe the jump zoom the way it like zooms in on her face i'm like why is she doing this she's not a car from the ether yeah the wraith i don't think anyone knows what you're talking about but when they get the now playing book they will <laughs> <laughs> I do wonder how Ethan Hunt walks away from this. He has no protective gear. That is going very fast. A very uh, disastrous wipeout he takes. And I'm sure Tom Cruise did it with no pads, no helmet, and eight <laughs> times. Yeah, it, I mean, that's the thing is that character Ethan is only wearing that loud shirt. Yeah, no helmet, no protective gear. No leather, yeah. Yeah, so it, it does look like it would be painful to wipe out in this way at that speed. It's the reason why the chase would end here. Even Cruz has to, to know when he's beat. And, and she gets away and, yes, goes back to a, a character. We think it's the syndicate guy. We think it's Solomon because they kind of look the same. And we see him sitting on a bench from behind. It takes a beat to realize we're meeting Atley for the first time. I was waiting for Atley to pull off a mask. <laughs> like, I just did not trust that guy from the beginning. I agree. I, I don't ever, ever feel like I can trust this one. And I, and it's partly because this is a character actor who's always played weaselly guys in the past. And you just, I don't think he's ever been honorable. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm sure he's had a one or two roles. It's that bad hair. It, it, get a toupee oh, or something. Yeah, it's like only his bangs grow so he combs <laughs> them back over the baldness. He looks weaselly. I honestly thought it would all come out that Lane was second in command to this guy. You know, like this guy would be the true mastermind. It kind of is. In 
a way, <laughs> that is the relationship. Yeah, but this guy, he's trying to cover up his mistakes. He's not trying right. to promote the syndicate. Right. But yeah, I agree. I thought that this was Lane and that she was going to him. But this is her saying, I want out. And him basically going, nope, I've already told the Americans you're a rogue agent. So it would be a shame if they killed you. Now go back to the syndicate. Yeah, he makes, basically he's saying you can still be working for Solomon if you demonstrate your loyalty. You know, she had a scene earlier where she goes back to him and she handed him a gun and is like, if you don't believe me, kill me. It was quite an impressive moment. And he ended up killing the guard she took the gun from. And now she's going to go back in order to keep working for him. She's going to have to kill Cruz. I did wonder if Atlee wanted Faust to be shot by Lane at this point. He's going to erase the jump drive that has the red box on it. So she takes it back and there's nothing on there. I, I really wonder, like, that was his final way to cover this up. Erase the data, have this deep agent murdered so she can't ever come out and say what was going on. I'm not sure what his motives were here for erasing everything, but I, I really felt it was to get Faust killed at this point and really finish the cover up. I, and I also feel like he'd want... Ethan dead because Ethan doesn't seem to stop. He's not going to stop until he's exposed the syndicate and exposing the syndicate ultimately exposes Atley. Yeah, I also think he just erased the disc because of the risk. He makes me question the validity of the data because Lane has been such a mastermind behind the scenes. Is this fake information that he wants to get to Atley? But I think Atley knows because he put it there. It's real information and it is so potentially dangerous. He can't risk it. He will risk Faust's life, but he won't risk Lane getting 2.4 billion pounds, which is like an infinite amount of American dollars. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And so she does go back to him in a cemetery scene. I got to say, if you're a fan of old movies or if you recognize that this movie has a quality, as I did, that doesn't feel contemporary, they're pulling a lot of imagery and a lot of storyline riffs off a movie, Orson Welles movie called The Third Man. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it, but it was set in Vienna. It ends up in the sewers. It was also had a cemetery scene with a woman very much photographed in this way. It was about arms and secrets. It was kind of a spy movie, I guess. But they're pulling a lot from Casablanca. They're pulling a lot from Third Man for this movie. And this sets up the final end because Lane has to have that information. He needs the $2.4 billion. His plan was Elsa would bring him the thumb drive and then he'd kidnap the prime minister or something to get it unlocked and get his money. But Benji was smart. He made a second copy. And now we're back in the knock list all over again, but they're calling Ethan on it. Ethan's like, okay, well, what we have to do is because he's like, well, we have to just get the prime minister. We have to go after the prime minister and we have to offer the data. <laughs> and Brant and Benji are both like, why don't we get Hunley and the CIA involved? Yeah, I mean, this is where it comes <laughs> up with Ethan's personality is he the gambler does he have a plan like at this point he figures oh lane has been directing this whole thing like he has been using us we got to outsmart him at this point like this is where we turn the tables where he isn't going to be able to anticipate something i like that they had the debate ultimately it's it takes the same position that every movie does and that is tom cruise can't lose but they really debate it. And I, I appreciate that. That was all I could really ask is that somebody put the brakes on this and said, you know what? Playing with the prime minister's life is a little reckless. And it's a conversation they have twice. They have the conversation once, but then they end up going after Ilsa and Benji gets kidnapped. And then they have the conversation again. And I like the way Cruz plays it because he's acting a little crazy. He's like, 
don't you see? Don't you see? And I'm like, I don't know whose side I'm supposed to be on in this scene. And on the second viewing, I'm like, that's the moment where he had his aha moment. He actually saw Lane's entire plot and he saw the way to get undisavowed and to get back in the CIA's good graces, expose the syndicate, stop Lane and get Benji back. That was his aha moment. But I didn't get that at that time. And there's something really important here, and this is where I say the character evolves, is because not only did we have the conversations, but when it's all about to go down, they Ethan destroys that drive. Yes. Every other time, he's delivered the nuke codes, he's delivered the knock list, he destroys that drive, and I think this is actually character evolution. He is less the gambler going into this end because of all the damage his gambling could potentially do. It's taken us five movies to get here, but yeah, they're going to do this whole thing to get all the passwords from the prime minister, and then he takes a drill to the drive. He'll look in there, he'll say he'll memorize everything. I think he memorized just a couple of things, but yeah, that I kind of did a silent cheer when I saw him destroy that drive and hope that there wasn't another backup he was going to pull out. We'll see how long this sticks, but yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm open I'm always open for a more humbled Cruz that's working with the team, that's thinking about the ramifications if he should fail, maybe just once. He's failed enough in the series now to recognize he doesn't always win, and so he should hedge his bets, and does. And I do like how they go about getting the Prime Minister. It's a very fun scene. They're at a charity auction, and... Hunt is undercover as Atlee, and Hunley is there because Brant has called him. And again, I questioned Brant's allegiances. When he sneaks out, I thought he was really turning because kidnapping the prime minister was too much. No, at this point, you know, they've had this whole debate. I'm like, okay, this is part of the plan. They're bringing Hunley in for a specific reason. This is all Brant playing along with Hunt. I didn't know what was going on. I was happy to let it unfold. I did not know latex masks were being used. (laughs) Atlee is really... Really, Cruz didn't see that coming. I, I felt like the twists were good here. I, I really like that they, this is a good time they bring in Hunley, because that's really the only way IMF is going to be restored, is if the head of the CIA realizes that the syndicate is real. Yeah, and Baldwin's very good in this. I think that he's really cannily cast here, given that he was, in my mind, the only Jack Ryan. You know, he's kind of the granddaddy of the Ethan Hunt. And so bringing him in for this scene where he's like half victim, but he's also smart enough to realize at the end that he's going to get a lot of credit for saving the prime minister's life. And the whole thing is revealed. Drunk prime minister is just (laughs) funny to me. Yeah, I like the humor here. Yeah, when he's all drugged up and they're suggesting to him what he's going to say afterwards. It, it feels like, is it a truth serum that they're shooting up, them up with? Yeah, probably sodium pentothal or some variation. Come on, the the IMF has better stuff than that. Yeah, it's some knockout drug that also has suggestive effects. And there's an antidote that is given so that... They're in that state until somebody takes them out of it. But no, it's a fun scene with a lot of dark guns. Ethan is not afraid to kill in this movie. He's going to kill some more goons later. But here he knows these are their allies. I mean, it's a funny line when Hunley says, you've just set back U.S.-British relations to the American Revolution. (laughs) It's funny and it's also accurate. Again, loyalty. I mean, I think that's why this was based in London. This is a country we almost take for granted is our friend now. But there was a time. Not so long ago where that wouldn't have been the case. And when do those alliances form? When do we feel like we can trust another? When can Ethan hand over the dart gun to Hunley and say, you see my point and feel like Hunley is not going to turn it on him? 
These are good questions, and, and I really feel like the theme is well worked throughout the story. I think this is well written. That said, was this rewritten? I know that Cruz was unhappy with this movie's conclusion and insisted on going back for expensive reshoots at the last minute to give this ending more oomph. This was not how I saw it ending. Them at a sidewalk cafe strapped to bombs. Macquarie has denied the reports that they refilmed this entire ending and that Paramount was unhappy with it. He admits that it was difficult to figure out what the ending would be. I mean, after all the stunt spectaculars they'd had, how do they end it? And they decided to go more personal. They decided to put Benji on a bomb. This tends to drag a bit for me at the end here. Yeah, it's one too many things. We're going to get bombs. We're going to get a knife fight. We're going to trap Lane in a glass cube. This is a long scene, and I get what they're doing. This is where Lane realizes that Hunt, has the one up. It's where we realize it. He says he's memorized all these codes, so he has to keep Hunt alive, which, okay, that's a nice twist. You're usually trying to kill the protagonist. If you're the bad guy here, he's got to keep him alive. So even with all these shootouts, but it just, it does tend to drag a bit for me here. I think this piece of the movie drags because I'm feeling the absence of Simon Pegg. Luther is just such a dour personality. He's very one note. Brant has multiple notes, but he's just not the light touch that Benji is. So when they kidnap him, I feel it. And when we get to the scene here, Peg really sells me that he's scared to death for his life, that he's sitting on a bomb and he thinks that they're all going to die because there's a no-win situation. Lane has set it up that if Hunt doesn't turn over the thumb drive in three minutes, a bomb's going to go off and kill everyone in the cafe, Hunt and Benji included. But if he does turn over the thumb drive, Ilsa has to prove her loyalty by killing them both. So win or lose, they're both dead. Yeah, it's just, it doesn't seem like a conflict that's relevant anymore. We know Hunley knows what's going on. The prime minister has unlocked the thing. It just, I don't know, this didn't feel necessary. The whole Benji got kidnapped kind of comes out of left field. Like that, they were just at some mall and all of a sudden someone threw a hood over him and dragged him to the parking lot. I just, it doesn't really make any sense to me. It's the one time I feel like where the script kind of lets the story down. I'll agree. It feels like it just goes into climax mode. I'm like, okay, we're here. We're at the showdown. That Lane himself gets out there. He's got this seemingly endless supply of goons that he leaves his computer monitor that's out of his character to go after Hunt. And I think that shows that Hunt has finally got the one up on him. Lane's always been a step ahead. Now Hunt's the step ahead and it's going to draw Lane out. He's not going to sit behind that computer monitor now and just watch what's going to go on. He's got to go after him now. I guess the, I do completely forget what this movie is telling me, which is Lane used to be a secret operative. I guess he would be good with fists and guns to go out there and fight Ethan. It just, the movie doesn't sell him that way. He doesn't come off that physical. Yeah. It seems to be his Achilles heel that he insists on actually being there when all the work he's doing, he could, by and large, just put contact lenses on the agents that are doing the work and watch from his iPad. But that said, I feel like the climax I enjoy is... Ilsa and Vintner. Yeah. You know, that that when she's going around those pillars, it's a very third man thing. And then the knife fight and all of that. Yeah, yeah that's a, that was the one moment in this climax. I'm like, yeah, the rest of it did just feel like, OK, they're they're wrapping it up. Ilsa killing Bone Doctor. That is just the best fight. But I like how Ethan lures Lane into a trap that's completely a mirror of the beginning. Ethan was trapped in that record booth, pounding on the glass, unable to break it, unable to save the record girl's life, and now they trap him in this glass box. And I saw 
Luther working on something. And I saw like hydraulic tanks or air tanks. And I'm like, why didn't Ethan take one of those to the trip? But that it becomes this mirror. The symmetry felt fun to me. Dramatic irony. It's ironic that, you know, the syndicate thought they had Tom Cruise in a box. And at the end, he's got them in a box and pushes it over. And yeah, he doesn't have to do anything. It's weird because we expect Tom Cruise to have a fight to the death, bloody brawl with the lead character, much like the parking garage scene from part four. But here it's more just like smiling confidently uh, through glass, watching this guy just unable to do anything but to fall over. It's the only time they don't kill the main bad guy. Yeah, I don't think there's a lot of death in this movie. Other than Ventner, I don't believe too many people on either side. For Certainly for a spy movie, it's pretty bloodless. Cruz shoots like a good half dozen agents or so. When the, when the shootout begins in the cafe and he's like being a human shield for Ilsa, they're shooting a lot of agents dead. Yeah, but it never feels violent here. Yeah, it, it, it's very PG-13. Yeah, I was checked out at that point in the movie. I noticed for, by and large, they showed a spy movie where it was much more about, yeah, a, a thinking man spy movie. It, I mean, there's action here, don't get me wrong, but I do feel like um, it wasn't bloodlust. No, I honestly think this could have been PG if it wasn't for a side boob shot of Ilsa. And they toy with the idea that maybe Cruz will go off. They have, they bring back that opera score. They have one moment together. This is the last we're going to see of either one of them. The The end of the movie involves neither character. Kind of a, another twist I wasn't expecting. But yes, do you think he's going to? Oh no. He, I like the way they end it, where she says what she said earlier. You know how to find me. He's going back to the IMF. The IMF is going to be reinstated. He's again going to be the senior agent. But if they want her back, if audiences like her, then he knows how to find her to bring her back for part six. And I love the ending here. At this point, I don't care about Ethan Hunt and Ilsa getting together, but I like the resolution with the CIA and the IMF. I like how they get together here. A funny, again, it's the exact same thing that they did with the syndicate, you know, thought they had Ethan in a box. They ended up in a box. At the beginning of this movie, he's shutting down the IMF. Here he's kicking it back, and now we'll be working for them, essentially. I'm not sure what the power dynamics will be, but basically, has he left the CIA, or or what's this going to look like in part six? I took it as it was undercover, because even the Senate that he's testifying in front of don't know that he's actually the new secretary of the IMF. They still think he's CIA. Oh, I thought they knew. I think they had to appoint the secretary. I think he's publicly director of the CIA, but because he was the one who was in on the plan, I love how he sells it, that the reason it was disbanded was all a plot to make the syndicate out themselves. And because he was part of that, in addition to director of the CIA, he also has this special team of IMF. So I think now IMF is a subset of the CIA. I took it as they didn't know because Brandt, whenever he has to testify, he just says, I can neither confirm nor deny without the direction of the secretary. And he says that right next to Hunley at the end here. And then they walk away and he calls him secretary. You get the joke that he kept doing this denial thing, even though the secretary was right there. So I took it as they didn't know or else they tell the secretary to make him testify. Well, I'd say we'd find out next time, but I was hoping we'd find out about the wife this time. So who knows what will happen next time. All I know is Cruz is saying that the script for the next one is already being written for a 2017 release. Hmm. That's a quick turnaround. But are we going to be excited to come back to Mission Impossible? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Rogue Nation? Jacob. 
whether I'm excited or not to come back to Mission Impossible, I, I don't think it has anything to do with my recommend. This is a series I've been pretty passive with. I just haven't ever really been engaged the way I am with other films. Would I have seen this film if it wasn't for now playing? No. Would I? You know, I wouldn't have revisited any of these. But I watched this one. It. it doesn't do a whole lot to further engage me as someone who has now seen all these films and had to think about these films as a franchise and as a story arc for Ethan Hunt and these different characters. Yeah, this is satisfying that it addresses some of his flaws about him being a gambler. I like that element of it. The action scenes are great. That motorcycle scene is great. Uh, diving into the water. I, I like all the action pieces here and... The story is fine. I, again, I, I have a hard time getting excited about this series. It's just not one that I do get excited about. But yeah, I'll recommend this one with, besides a few problems with the way it kind of lags at the end. I think if you're looking to get into a cool theater to avoid the heat and spend a couple of hours, sure, this is going to probably satisfy you. If you can't wait to see Spectre and James Bond this fall, sure, this is a good holdover. So yeah, it's a recommend for me. Stuart. Yeah, I think 2015 is shaping up to be a pretty good year for spy movies. I mean, I like Kingsman a lot. I looking forward to Spectre. I even didn't think that Fast and Furious 7 was too bad. Uh, surprising enough, believe it or not, the one that's the best so far is Melissa McCarthy's Spy. That actually is the spy movie I've enjoyed the most. It was great. Oh God, that looked miserable, but I hate her. How was Jason Statham in it? Better than Fast and Furious 7? He's great in it. That movie is really <laughs> a true surprise for me. I did not want to see it, and boy, I was glad that I did. But all of these movies were recommends, and this one is too. It's very solid. I think that it's the best written, best female, best cruise performance. Stunts on par with anything done before. It's nice to see him compete. I like to believe that James Bond is going to win, and that Spectre is going to be a better version of the story we just watched. But Cruz is competing here. At last, finally, this kind of wannabe franchise is giving us the kind of spy adventures that I really like and, and would like to see it achieve. This level is exactly where they need to be, and they've done a really good job. So, yes, yeah, strong recommend. Yeah, I'm giving this a strong recommend. I can't believe that they could top Dubai, and they really do. I had read going in about the water scene and the holding of the breath. I read going in that he was really hanging off that airplane we saw in the trailers. But until I got in there and saw what happened with Macquarie's script and Macquarie's filming, I got to give the credit. The reason I think this is by far the best Mission Impossible movie, and keep in mind, I've recommended them all, but I said each one gets better for me and that continues. And I credit Macquarie for all of it. The tight script is a really fun movie. And my question isn't just, is this the best Mission Impossible movie? Is this the best movie this summer? Is what I had to really contemplate. In the end, the only one that I think is better still is Mad Max. And yes. that's technically not summer. That was technically late spring. But of the summer movie season that starts in May, Mad Max is number one and Mission Impossible Rogue Nation number two. I really think go see it. See it in IMAX if you can. I have not yet. Both my seeings were regular. I will see this in IMAX. I want to see these stunts in IMAX. The stunts are incredibly thrilling. The actors are engaging. And the script kept me guessing. Yeah, best of the franchise that I rank 54321. <laughs> yeah, it's a stair step. Just take two out of it. Two doesn't even exist. It's a horrible film that never should have been made <laughs> unless you like John Woo movies, and then you'll probably enjoy it. I don't, and it's not going to convince anyone that doesn't that they should. 
But yeah, one was pretty good. Three was pretty solid. Four was good. And this one is heading towards greatness. I do feel like, yeah, I mean, I probably like Kingsman a little more. Spy, believe it or not, I liked more. But this is definitely one of the best summer releases. And I think people are going to have a good time. Whether you like Cruise or not, you'll just enjoy a, a good spy show. And I guess I'm the odd man out here. I, I, this whole series just feels kind of generic. Generic James Bond to me, which I couldn't say this film was great. I still like three more because I like the personal stakes in that one. I like the villain more. It, that's still the most excited I got for one of these Mission Impossible films. But yeah, five comes in right after that. Then I'm going to go one, then four, which, yeah, I, it wasn't a recommend. I just wasn't engaged. I feel like the better the villains with these films, the better the movie most of the time. And then, yeah, two is way, way, way down there. I guess I'm the only one gagging for two. <laughs> you, are. you are. It took me a second to realize what you were. I was like, no, I was gagging. I was <laughs> plenty gagging. <laughs> That's right. That was some stupid line in that movie. But that ends our Mission Impossible series. I want to thank listeners who've joined us. We are not done with action. We're not done with car chases. We're not done with Jason Statham, who was in The Fast and the Furious. Because next week, we've got Fantastic Four. And then a week after that, we're starting our next retrospective series, Transporter, leading up to the new prequel, Transporter Refueled. Is it a prequel, or did they just not find the money to pay Statham anymore? <laughs> I've read it's a prequel. It is an early story of when he had hair. <laughs> it's coming out on Labor Day, and if there's one thing I know, it's that nothing good ever comes out on Labor Day. But I hope that it beats the trend. Of course, before that, I have the rule that very little good comes out in August. So, Fantastic Four. Hey, that's always been a real problematic area of the Marvel Universe. And I think we've all, maybe even you, Arnie, as the movie comic book fan, might be a little tired of going to see superhero stuff. But there's no reason to believe from what I've seen that this won't be a sturdy, solid-looking remake of what's kind of a corny comic book family. Won't be hard to be the best Fantastic Four film ever made, I'll say that much. <laughs> low bar, low bar. They've done a lot just by getting rid of Alba. I mean, this is all steps in the right direction. I liked Chronicle. There's a lot about this coming in. I like the actor playing Human Torch. I think that this could be a recommend. I mean, everyone knows I don't love these superhero movies, and God knows people tell me when I don't love a Marvel movie enough that they've really enjoyed, but I'm hoping for a weak recommend. I'm going in mind open. The pre-release stuff I've heard, the stuff about the director possibly being barred from his own set for reshoots, a lot of the pre-release press has been negative. I don't know what to make of the trailers. It looks like Interstellar with a superhero in it. Definitely Nolan. Yep. I'm going in with an open mind. I'm going to be seeing it Thursday night and possibly a second time before we record. It could go any way for me. I'm just a blank slate. I gotta say, of all the movies we've covered this summer, Jurassic World, Mission Impossible 5, Fast and Furious 7, this is the one that I keep forgetting about. It's like, there, I have no excitement built up for it. I wanted to see Terminator even less, and that proved to not be so bad. So, hey, if that was going to be the worst of summer, then there's real hope for Fantastic Four next week. And then let's give listeners a preview into our rest of the year schedule. When we get past the transporter, we're done with fast cars and moving to fast spaceships. We're going to the galaxy far, far away with the most requested, dare I say demanded retrospective series ever, Star Wars. You know I'm a fan. I've been podcasting about it for 10 years. 
over at SWActionNews.com. We're going to do this one in chunks, though, and for people who ask, yes, we're starting with Star Wars, the real Star Wars that came out in 1977 before it had a subtitle, The New Hope. We're doing Star Wars Empire Jedi. Yes, we're doing the Ewok movies from television. Oh, boy. Man, oh man, I'm I'm cool with going back. I am considered as newbie-ish as you can get on this franchise. I haven't seen any Star Wars movie since Sith hit theaters, and I haven't seen these original trilogy since the 90s. But yeah, Ewoks, I've never watched those. The prequels, we're going to take a break in between the original trilogy and the... Ewok TV movies to do a couple other stuff. We're going to be getting back to King. We're going to be catching up with James Bond. And there's even a new Rocky movie coming out, I hear. Oh, that's right. Creed. And then we're going to end after all that. We're going to do the Clone Wars animated movie. Stuart reviewing it for the second time. Oh, if you haven't heard that, please go listen to it. It is a joy. (laughs) For you, the listener, maybe. I'm not looking forward to seeing it again. (laughs) Neither am I. You know what I am looking forward to? Understanding it. I might actually know what the hell was going on if I watch those prequels again and then watch it. And stay awake for it. Yeah. That, yeah. It truly will be my, my first time <laughs> seeing it start to finish. I did take about 10 minutes to uh, micro nap there. And I don't, re- I don't regret a second of it. <laughs> you wish there was a few more seconds of napping. And then ending with The Force Awakens. Actually not ending. Culminating with The Force Awakens. And then the holiday special. Yeah, for Christmas, we are doing this notorious Lucas-inspired B. Arthur singing. Life day. There was some kind of Wookiee sex dream. I remember. <laughs> you showed it to me once in pieces. On my bachelor party night. What? Bachelor party? Yes. I remember not understanding a, a thing of that I watched. So we'll be going through that for the holidays and wrapping up for the year. One of your favorites, Jacob. Oh, yeah. Point break. I I don't know if that remake's going to be one of my favorites, but definitely a fan of the original. It's got to be better than the remake of Dirty Dancing, right? Never saw it. Are you talking about Havana Nights? (laughs) Yes, I am. We can hope. So we've got a really big rest of the year coming. Plus, our donation drives are going to start up in September, the fall donation drive. We're going to be doing Hunger Games and a ton of Quentin Tarantino films. I with leading up to Hateful Eight coming out some places on Christmas, coming out other places early next year. So it's going to be a great time. I hope you're with us. And finally, if you happen to be going to Wizard World Chicago at the end of August, Brock, Jerry, Marjorie, and I are going to be there celebrating our 10th year of podcasting. Star Wars Action News started in August 2005. We're having a big party there. There's a banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. If you're in the Chicago area, you don't need passes to the convention. You can come and party with us. Oh, how awesome. Well, congratulations on that. 10 years is quite an accomplishment, and I won't be there, but I love Chicago. I love you guys. I wish you the best. Sounds fun. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next week with the Fantastic Four, mission accomplished. The president has invoked ghost protocol. We're shut down. No satellite safe house support. 
or extraction. Thank you for listening to Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode in the Mission Impossible retrospective series. Seems we have a lot to talk about, don't we? Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another Mission Impossible review, culminating in a week of release review of Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Have you been away so long you've forgotten how good we are? Also at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find reviews of hundreds of other films, including the Avengers films, Rambo, the Ocean's Eleven films, the Batman movies, and more. I am gagging for it. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Where else am I going to go? You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+ where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post written movie reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. Oh, that was nothing. That was fun. That's fun. I can understand you're very upset. You've never seen me very upset. Now Playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads. It's donations from listeners like you that keep Now Playing on the air. Relax, Luther. It's much worse than you think. You can give money by clicking the support link at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. Are you in or not? Of course we're in. Now Playing is edited by Heath, Anthony, Stephen, and Arnie. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Difficult should be a walk in the park for you. Now playing credit narration by Brock. Is he serious? Always. <laughs> the movie discussed in this podcast and the music used are the property of their copyright holders and no infringement is intended. My lawyers are going to have a field day with this. Entrapment, jurisdictional conflict. Well, maybe we'll just leave the courts out of this one. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I don't have to tell you what a comfort anonymity can be in my profession. <laughs> it's like a warm blanket. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. We were unprepared, in the dark, disavowed. And the only thing that functioned properly on that mission was this team. I don't know how we ended up together. I'm glad we did. Today we're recording. Recording? <laughs> yes, we are recording today. We are on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> While well, Arnie, you saw it twice, why don't you give us the plot? 
Just once, though. Yeah. It's pretty if, I'd only seen it, if I'd only seen it once, I'd still have to do the plot. <laughs> <laughs> but the MIF investigation comes to an abrupt end. IMF, not the MIF. I know. Impossible Mama. mission for Or M-I-L-F. That'd be real fun. <laughs> yeah, I was like, uh, Mom, I want to... Uh. <laughs> Rebecca Ferguson. Is it Rebecca? I believe Why so. I put Re- My notes for some reason say Rebecca. Like, oh, it's, it's Rebecca. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I think that's safe to say that's a typo. Yeah, porn parody. <laughs> Well, all the things that, you know, Apollo. When you think about these. Hey, check and see if Tom Cruise is hanging off of it. <laughs> no. Is he falling off of it? Even more important. <laughs> but the, the character I think we really question the most is the newbie, is Isla. I'm sorry, Isla. Elsa. Elsa. <laughs> oh, God, that would be something. Yeah. The, the Elsa Nazi, of She Wolf the Nazi- SS. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's a crossover we need. I, I would do that retrospective, by the way. That There's sounds like an Easter egg one, yeah. <laughs> Let me try it again. The question... Oh, the question. I really like it. It is so effective in this movie. So much better than Michael Giacchino. I'm just going to diss Michael Giacchino. Yeah, you're just gonna, not going to miss an opportunity to snipe on him. But uh, I'm burning it, that Hollywood bridge right now. Michael Giacchino was listening. Like, I was going to call these guys to come to my premiere, but fuck them now. <laughs> you would have forgiven him anything if he hadn't done Jupiter Ascending, I think. <laughs> I recommend. I mean, everyone knows I don't love these superhero movies. And God knows people tell me when I don't love a Super Mario. Super uh, Mario. When, uh, Super Mario. <laughs> When 